Hey, Melody. Hey, Peter. What's up, Drew? Hi. <laughs> Welcome to How College Works. Uh, so the last couple episodes, we have talked about uh, some soft skills and how those show up in our classes. I wanted to take a little break and take it back to something that Melody and I think about and that Drew thinks about, but sort of in a, in a different way, and that's academic freedom. So I think the first thing we need to do is define academic freedom. So when professors talk about academic freedom, mostly what we're talking about is our ability to choose both the content and delivery of our courses. That when I'm hired here and am told these are the classes that we offer, tend to offer, we'd like you to offer, I get to design those courses however I wish. I can pick up my textbook or not use a textbook. I can design the labs however I wish and then conduct those however I wish. And for a faculty member, that's really what academic freedom means, is that when you walk into my class, I've had free reign to construct, design, sculpt that class into whatever, it is, whatever shape I want it to be. Does that match for you, Melanie? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I also consider academic freedom connected to tenure in some way. Like, you can't get fired over what you teach or what you research. That's true, and there is sort of a give and a take, especially in the, in, in the early, when you're a junior faculty member, that you are proving yourself to your colleagues. And so while you normally have all the freedom in the world to do whatever you want, you might want to consider that the people who are going to say whether you get to stick around forever are your colleagues, and if you're kind of pissing them off with what you're doing, then you may not get tenure. That might show up as, um, in a previous uh, institution, I taught as a member of a more than one person department, and so I taught some of the low-level courses and some of the mid and upper-level courses. And so part of that was making sure that in my low-level courses, I'm covering the material to the depth and rigor that my colleagues who are teaching the mid- and upper-level courses that depend on that need me to. That if I'm passing them through my class and they never learn to do, I don't know, quantum mechanics at the level that they need to, you know, and then they move on to the next class, then uh, there's going to be some words for me as a junior faculty member that I'm not getting them to where I need to get them to for my colleagues to do that. And so while I have the freedom to do it, much like I tell my students sometimes, you have the freedom to do whatever you want, including blow off this class and not do homework and fail this class. You know, I have the academic freedom to do things academically that shoot, shoot me in the foot. <laughs> so Drew, from your perspective of a, of, you know, a high school teacher, what does academic freedom mean sort of to you and I guess a related question, do high school teachers have academic freedom? Uh, God, there's way more ex- expert people to talk to than me about, about the topic. I think when I think about this phrase, I'm thinking about teachers will talk about high school, K-12, whatever teachers will talk about being in your four walls. And, do, you know, once the door shuts after the faculty meeting or, or the training or whatever, once the door shuts, I'm, I'm in my room. And, and for the observations, when the admin comes in and does an observation, uh, we all know what you know. What I need to emphasize, and what certain item, like certain districts I've worked for, had certain you know the ascent, the standards had to be on the board, and these certain like little check boxes had to be filled. Other than other than those things, I mean, you know, I I, I can do anything in my room, 
teach or not teach. I've, I've worked with, with uh, on campuses with teachers who uh, roll a movie on Friday. No joke. And Every Friday? You know, and students and teachers know who that teacher is on, on each campus in America. You know what I mean? And yeah. the students can tell a lot louder than the, than the teachers can about what's going on. But when I go to a department meeting and I listen to what is the, you know, what's the pacing, what's the curriculum, what needs to get covered in Algebra 1, or geometry or what have you I take my notes on that and I put it in my document and then I go back to my classroom and I say well where are my students on skill levels and you know that's the target and that's the goal and I'm going to try to you know stick to it and aim for it but I in reality I have to take the battle plan to the front lines and get my troops up over the hill you know what I mean like so the academic freedom for a k-12 teacher is the pacing guide is a guide, and I'm not on chapter four with the rest of my people. I'm half chapter behind because we're mastering topics and what have you. And the textbook is the textbook is the paper that's in front of me that's delivered for free from the district. But I could supplement with whatever I want to make my YouTube videos and flip my classroom or whiteboard drawings that I did myself or you know Google Slides, whatever I, I created. I think that's my academic freedom is how do I deliver this? Is it going to be groups of four? Am I going to do whole class instruction? Am I going to do web quest or some kind of pedagogy delivery model, whatever? Hmm. Uh, to me, that's the academic freedom inside my four walls. And, you know, that's part of the hindrance, too, for, for us is if you get stuck inside your own four walls, the best creativity you have is inside your own head. But if you're able to get outside your own four walls, I could steal other people's ideas, too. <laughs> It's called fair use education system, uh, setting. So That's one thing I might want to break down for our listeners is they may not have thought about what a curriculum is, and pedagogy may not be a word that comes up very often. Uh, it's one that comes has come up a fair amount in, in my life, but only after I went to grad school. Yeah, yeah. So to break that down the way I look at this, and I, and I think, Drew, you, you tend to look at it a little bit differently, but curriculum for for me, are, is the topics covered. So I have a class where I, I tell them, you know, we will we will watch a movie as much as I sneer at watching movies, but we will watch this movie, and from the questions you have about the physics involved, that will set our curriculum. So we watch Apollo 13, and the sort of how did they did that, did that make sense sort of questions that I stop the movie every 20 minutes, they hate it, stop the movie every 20 minutes, they're all like, what did you see? What do you not understand? So the questions that they ask are the things that set what we talk about during the semester, and so that sets the curriculum, which I, uh, so topics for me is curriculum, whereas pedagogy is fancy word, basically meaning how do you teach? So how do you deliver the content of your class to your students? And, and that takes all the forms that are possible from students sitting there blank-faced like a bunch of mannequins while I drone on and on like your stereotypical teacher like or professor right <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> or you know interactive stuff as well does that kind of fit for you drew i think you had a little bit different when we talked earlier yeah i think that so you're, you're refreshing my memory the, there was a time in i want to say 2007 2008 at least in in the state of california where the the mode in every district in this in my county was direct instruction hmm. was the was the desired most. So they had um, what does direct instruction mean? Yeah, explicit whole group 
literally like the teacher edition of the of the textbook had blue words that were to be read aloud and black words that were to not be read aloud and the correct student response was was written in and if they said it wrong we we went there was a procedure to go back and correct the the mistakes wow man sound like i mean it sounded like, like bad communism <laughs> Well, it was, you know, and there was that moment where the data said direct instruction is what works and we're going to close the achievement gap and we were mm. aiming at test scores and the district is held highly accountable money-wise to test scores. And it's really important that the school board is voted on by parents who pay property taxes, which property taxes are impacted by the test scores of the local school. So yeah, That sounds like an evil cycle. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there was a moment when direct instruction was the was the buzzword and the admin wanted to come in and see you holding the book and everybody was on the same page that day, like literally on pace, on page, and the standard written on the board and we're all doing less than 12 and the students are all sitting upright and responding simultaneously with correct answers. And, and then in 2008, we all went and watched Stand and Deliver. I don't know, but, you know, this has changed. And so nowadays the, the stuff I'm hearing is more, uh, hey, direct instruction has been like the, the research has come back on the opposite side. It's not any more effective than anything else. In fact, less effective. And, you know, the state of California, for example, has, we used to test everything. We used to test exit exam, science, history, English, math, every year of school, they would do a, mm -hmm. a full battery of tests. Now we test the 11th graders. Yeah. And we yeah. test the, the 10th graders get a life science, the 11th graders get just an English and a math, and that's that's basically it for high school. So we've moved away, and they're, they say they're coming up with a brand new one to replace the current. So it's kind of this pendulum swinging of this test accountability. Well, the test went away, so the need to be accountable to the test has disappeared, and now we're all, for the last couple of rounds, the departments have been able to say, they've come, the district has come to us with options and said, we could do A or B, you guys vote. And we've been allowed to, hey, yeah, we like this, we like that. Not everybody in the department was unanimous, but we, we had a majority, we picked that second type curriculum, whatever it was, and everybody's got the same paper textbook, and again, everybody goes back to their four walls, and, and the English teachers that like to teach literature pull out books and, and teach literature and the, you know so we're still able to go back to our four walls and do our thing I think the difference is you, you mentioned tenure back in 2007 2008 I wasn't permanent status so I had to be visibly seen doing exactly what I was told to do or they can the district could let you go without giving you a reason why it's not firing but it's basically like we're just going to not pick up your contract and we right. don't have to give a reason. In fact, if they give a reason, it's probably in their best interest not to. Yeah, that's basically the same situation for junior or pre-tenure faculty right. is that if everything went pear-shaped, they would just not renew my contract. So, so we hope yeah. to have a contract in a few months for next year. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yes, yes. I, I think I should get rehired. Should, should <laughs> so remember you guys were talking about like the topics versus pedagogy this reminded me of like the English department because we have multiple sections of 101 and 102 
like college writing one and two, we have the same outcomes, but how we get to those outcomes are like it's individualized. So we don't even have the same textbook. In fact, like that was something that we voted on in terms of how much coordination do we want, how much freedom do we want, and we agreed that some of us were not comfortable all teaching from the same textbook. So we'll teach the same types of assignments, like analysis or a documented essay, but other than that, it's pretty open for however that particular professor mm. wants to teach that. And that seems to me maybe not stereotypical or even necessarily prototypical, but it's like a great example of what academic freedom sort of means right. is that there are times when you really want everybody who's teaching different sections to be kind of like in lockstep, everybody moving at the same pace. And some departments I've heard in like math departments where everyone has the same exam. Mm. Like so, and that can be really useful in terms of say assessment and figuring out like is what's happening in the individual classrooms working or not. This is crazy. Sorry to cut you off, not no, sorry. Go ahead. The, um, the, the reason there that the, one of the many times this is so great is if you're accountable to you know, test scores and the achievement gap and, and, and taxpayers, if I've got an itinerant population coming in of English learners or what have you, I should, uh, and for master schedule for a compulsory K-12 education, I can put any kid that moves in the district in the middle of the year and they frequently, like I'll get a new kid like next week, you know, in December, I'll get a new kid because they, who would move like after finals? Why, why wouldn't you move just two weeks before finals? That's perfect. <laughs> but I can drop them in any class in ninth grade English and they should be really close to the same place. So like there's the impetus for an administration to say all my English nine classes are lined up and yeah, you have to have that common formative assessment and common final assessment in order to really gauge how is the entire school of English 9 doing. But at college level, it makes sense. If you want to play saxophone, you go to U of M and study under Don Sinta. Yes, you do. Okay? If you want to, you know, if you want to study economics, you go to Harvard and you do whatever. Like, I, you <laughs> know, know. <laughs> I'm, I've, I've picked my college based on my major, my, and I picked my classes based on some knowledge of the professor it's not the other way around right yeah so that's like one of the big things about <clears throat> coming coming to college and taking classes at the college level is there's less i guess need there nobody you cannot enroll in my class after the second week mm. which means basically like it like ad ad is closed which means that I don't need to make sure that my course content is in lax, lockstep with anybody else who's teaching physics because nobody else is coming in at that point. And so we're not allowed to do that because of some kind of, you know, federal kids have to go to school laws. Yeah, I don't know what that's about, but yeah, that's uh it's a very different sort of system. So mostly what I need to worry about is does the topic does the content the, the curriculum of my class match enough the curriculum of other comparable classes? And do my students achieve what I need them to achieve? And so basically that entire semester is totally fair game for me to mess with whatever I want to on. Um, but even that being said, like, 
even though we have an assignment sequence for 101, those are based on benchmarking from what other first-year writing classes do. It wasn't like we're like, oh, we're just going to do a collage or whatever we want. Like, we do research. We do base this on our experience and our knowledge of the field of, like, what an introductory physics class or what a college writing one class is supposed to teach students. Mm-hmm. So, yes, we have freedom, but hopefully we're using that freedom responsibly. <laughs> right. With great power comes heat vision. With heat vision? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Great responsibility. <laughs> but the... Um, <laughs> so the, I mean, part of, I think the reason, sort of like tenure for academic freedom is to allow a professor, a faculty member who's proven themselves to change things around, sometimes drastically. And it should not surprise anyone that the first time you do something really new that could be really powerful it's hated. It, it, well, it's hated because it's kind of a cluster. Because <laughs> you've never done it before. And even even lectures, which is what my students generally are mostly used to. The first lecture that a really great lecturer gave was crap. Like, without a doubt. The first one they gave was all over the place and messy and bad. But they practiced it and, they got, and it got better. And so having some room to do that, ideally in a way that does not put your students at a disadvantage is, uh, I think, really nice. It allows me the flexibility and to be feel comfortable doing things here that I, w- I wouldn't have done before because I didn't, have, I didn't quite have that freedom to do it. So I think at some level, what you're describing, Drew, is having this academic freedom in pedagogy. And at the college level, partly because we're not mandated to have to accept students in the middle of the semester, <laughs> And the fact that as an institution, or at least as a group of people, we see students as paying for the privilege of access to us as opposed to us being like a service provider. Right. I don't want to, I don't mean to make that sound like that's what high school K-12 instructors do, but it's it's a privilege, not a right. I think that, you know, like you said, the the reason for being of a a district-wide pacing guide. Every high school in the district is going to do this curriculum, this book, and we're going to all finish Chapter 5 by December, and we're going to all be done through Chapter 10 uh, in June. You know, the reason for that is so that when we all take our finals, we can say, this kid that took their final at my high school and that kid that took his final at the Crosstown High School and this kid that took his final at the Continuation High School have all learned the same information and so that for, for credits, they will have passed the state requirement to pass Algebra 1 and be able to go to the next math class. And so it makes it easy for the mm. master scheduling computer. So again, and in college, that system is not, has a different MO. Yeah, I mean, so there is, anytime you transfer from one college to another, unless they have already as two institutions sort of worked it out and articulated what's going on, you negotiate. So if a student is transferring from our school to another school and they want their their physics class they took with me to count, they need to send in my syllabus and the schedule and stuff. And usually I will write a letter and say, this is, this is the curriculum I use. This is used here, here, and here. See, big schools, you know, this is not rinky-dink. Let's you know, watch Bill Nye the Science Guy for physics class. Bill, yeah, Bill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then they say yay or nay. It's somebody else's decision. It's not mine or, or my students. So that's, that's I, a pain. In that sense, I, I don't have, like, I'm, I, 
I'm told at the at the pleasure of the principal what I'll be teaching next year. You know, my you know, hey, we need you to do this, that, and that, and de- depends on the principal. Some places I've worked, it's been, hey, so and so's biggest seniority, been here the longest, and those where all the skeletons are, whatever old boys club, whatever reason you want to come up with. Uh-huh. So he's going to have the calculus kids that are the the quote good kids or the quote nice kids, easy quote easy class, whatever. And, you know, so-and-so is the teacher that has the least class management, so we're going to put him with the pre-calculus because there he does the least damage. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, some of that that happens at... Yeah, that happens here. Yeah, so... So it's like talent, though. I mean, it's like the, the guys that like to play fantasy football or build your soccer team or one of those kind of games. This is what the admin does in about March, April, May, is if they're smart or June if they're bad is start looking at who's my talent pool how deep is my bench right teaching wise yeah I mean the same thing happens in in certainly larger departments is there are courses which need to be offered service courses major courses that need to be offered because other departments need them to be offered or your majors need them to progress and graduate and then it becomes down to a negotiation and at many places those responsibilities are rotate but they all but they rotate on like a three or four year time scale so you you teach the same courses for three or four years and then you'll rotate through i might i mean i teach all the classes now but you know i might have taught an intro level course and sort of a mid or upper level course and i'll teach those courses for three or four years and then i would rotate through and i teach a different set of mid uh, low and mid upper level courses so that I'm not always stuck teaching the same thing all the time. So, Drew, do you ever get, like, you're teaching this class in the fall, so get ready kind of thing? Or do you get to choose uh, what you teach? I get I get that almost every year. Oh. No, here's what happens. So, well, so I'm a kind of a special case. I think that um, a, a general ed teacher has a, a lot more control over what they're doing, if, especially at high school level. They're a single-subject credential you're really only going to be teaching something having to do with math. Mm -hmm. So, you know, hey, our stats teacher uh, had a kid and quit teaching. We need somebody to teach stats. Okay, so then it was draw straws of who has the credential it covers and who's interested. Well, that was two people, so they fought it out and arm wrestled. That was fine. (laughs) All adults solve conflict. And they knew that was coming a little in advance, how these things work. But... um, Anyway, so in about March, I get a piece of paper that says, what would you like to teach next year? And you're all like, trumpet. Well, I always put down, like, music theory. I'm actually qualified. But, you know, and I put down the same stuff I'm teaching this year and whatever. Once in a while, I put one down just to trick them. I'm like, "Uh, underwater basket weaving, just to see if they're reading it up there. I don't know what they do with them. And um, Medieval jousting. Ooh. Right, and really, and they sit down, and they look at sections and the number of kids, and they also ask us because I'm again, I'm teaching special education, so I'm teaching students with learning disabilities. I have smaller class size of like ten to fifteen students, so if we don't have six kids or eight that need an algebra one resource class, I don't have a class. I have to teach something else. Right. So, so I have to be able to give a prediction. Hey, my ninth graders this year, they're going to tenth. I think they're going to go into this and this and that. And we're going to probably have 10 kids that need Algebra 2. Okay, so now I have a section. So I kind of know what 
sections are going to be needed in my little department. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I could sit there and argue and say, well, I'd like to teach English. I'm, you know, my credential covers special ed English, but the other teachers have that kind of locked down of, of they have the curriculum and they have been practicing teaching it and what have you. So, yeah, but I, I basically get told by the administration what, what, uh, what you're going to do. I, I tell them what I would like and they, they know what I'm good at. Like I'm, probably the strongest in my department at, at supporting students in math and upper level math. So, you know, that goes into it as well, but basically I, I'm at the pleasure of the, of the principal. Mm-hmm. And so we have it a little bit differently here that as long, so we, first we'd have to propose a class. So we write up a course proposal. I want to teach this course. Here's what it's going to cover, and here are the instruction methods and stuff like this. And that gets passed to the curriculum committee, whose job it is to review our proposal and determine whether what we're proposing is curricularly sound. And once they approve that, it goes into the catalog. And then, you know, we designate every fall, every spring, every fall and spring, alternating falls or springs. Or... Or every periodically, so, every so often. Or, basically, yeah. there's a designation which is like sometimes. Yeah, when I feel like the it. sometimes designation, and then every semester actually we sub we fill out a thing where we submit what we plan to teach to our division, mm-hmm. and then we at the division level we have to, at the department level you got to hash out who's going to teach right. what course, and so at the division we have level you got to to kind of figure out, and we wor- right. worry about times and all that stuff. But right, yeah. and the division level you got to hash stuff out like. It, in my division, we have basically slots, time slots. Like, and those are the ones you need, you should probably be working in because stepping outside those may cause like a cascade effect. Like, mm-hmm. now the physics class, co- you know, conflicts with the chemistry, so they got to move that, which is going to conflict with the biology. So, students that are on, on tracks, like, um, like a pre med track, everything now gets thrown out of whack if, if we're not careful because we're small enough that. Right. There is one, there is one physics section. There is like maybe two uh, general chemistry sections, that sort of thing. But for the most part, we don't have to teach classes we don't want to when we don't want to. Teach. Yeah, I could propose. Like I teach intro physics and astronomy. I could propose a second intro astronomy course, basically like an Astro One Hundred Two, and I could just throw that in there periodically, so we could teach cosmology instead of just astronomy, wow. galactic evolution. And if it didn't fill up, it just wouldn't. It just wouldn't be. It just wouldn't make. Yeah, it's, it's called not making. Every school has a different cutoff. For us, it's five, unless it's a required course. So if sometimes it's not. <laughs> I think, you know, the difference is uh, they can predict pretty accurately down to like really close how many eighth graders we're going to get coming into ninth grade next year. How many twelfth graders are going to graduate? How many 12th graders are going to be fifth-year seniors? We know almost <laughs> down to the section. We don't have that you know, level of communication, so it's more of a crapshoot you know, for us. Like, because it's compulsory, every kid right. of a certain age in the entire county has to go somewhere. If somebody moves out, it also means somebody moved back in. So Usually. we can pretty much count on 10% leaving and 10% coming back in. And our eighth graders moving to ninth are going to be a certain number of like basically 500 kids, and we got to have chairs for all of them at eight o'clock in the morning. You oh, have you have enough chairs, right? Yeah, yeah, 
we do, but I'm just saying we got to have butts in seats, and you got to have everybody in an English class. The, the schedule writes itself. So <laughs> schedule writes itself. If only that would be so beautiful. <laughs> so maybe I'll um, tie this back to sort of our nominal audience. <laughs> so what does this mean for our students? I mean, part of it means is that your professors ideally have thought long and hard about what they're going to teach and how they're going to teach it, which doesn't mean that your high school teachers didn't also think long and hard about what and how, but they may have spent more of that balance on how than what. You may just be handed, you're teaching algebra, here's your book, and now spend some quality time figuring out how to deliver that content in a way that is going to be uh, effective. So when you, when a student comes in and says, you're, so when we went back to student entitlement, and I student who told me in anonymous feedback that I was doing it wrong, you know, one of the things, now you maybe can understand how I, why I found that so irksome, because it wasn't like somebody handed me a textbook, it was like, here's your textbook, here are all the exams, you know, go. Like, I'm just going to stand up and like, every day pull out a new sheet and read the blue words, don't read the black words. But I'm... You know, I thought, I thought long and hard about how to set that course up for my students to learn and retain the most, and not just the book, but when to do the exams, what the exam should look like, what the lab should look like. You know, how to sequence things, yeah, things what, build off of each other. That's right. What do I need to hit? What should I be doing in class? What should I be doing to get them to be doing things? You know, there was a lot of thought that, for me that went into the, the pedagogy, the delivery. Uh, and then for a student to be all like, you're not lecturing the way you should be. <laughs> yeah, you know, like a yeah, yeah. Okay. It's probably good that I don't know who that was. You didn't have any idea. <laughs> yeah, I think we have to go back on that one and say like that's a symptom of, or that poor quality feedback may have been accurate, but the message didn't get across. <laughs> <laughs> that's rude. But, no, I don't, I don't mean it that way. It could have been inaccurate, but the message still didn't get across. Right. It, right. It, it, it's it's a symptom of not knowing how to deal with the, the poor educational experience the student is having. And that's the purpose of our podcast is to say, okay, you're having an experience you're not agreeing with. Let's find the real root cause because we're trying to say it's not the professor per se. They're right. right I mean, it's not necessarily rare. the student per se either, right? It's, it's right, right, right. You know, we're just speaking different languages and have different expectations. And as much as we can get everyone on the same page, that smooths this over. You may still be a jerk. That, that's a thing that happens. But let us assume that, that our listeners are not jerks. I don't think you're jerks, listeners. Don't be jerks. No, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, how can I tick off my teacher today? Mm. <laughs> well... <laughs> Nobody wakes up and comes to ninth grade first grade <laughs> and says, I want to be a failure. No, nobody, nobody, yeah, no student, I don't think, not even my students who give me um, just 10 pounds of sass in a five-pound bag, those, they don't want to fail either. Nobody walks in the door and says, I want to be terrible today. I want to be a failure today. I, even the guys that come into college, they're, they're coming in saying, I want to do good. And, yeah, in, in public K-12 level, we have a different, a way different system we've talked about in different uh, episodes as to how we're putting uh, chips in their side of the table for them to be able to play the game fairly, but it's, it's, it's way different in college. Yeah. I don't know, you might want to edit this out later, but 
We're doing evaluations right now. Oh yeah, I got to Like so, our, we have they have electronic evaluations sent to their emails. So the first day uh, that they went out, I had a conversation with my first year writing class because I was like, let's talk about the rhetorical situation of evaluations because I wanted them to think about like who their audience was and what kinds of like language would be appropriate. If they really want change, they're going to have to write well. Such an English professor. Well, Please go. Please keep going. <laughs> I told them if they spelled uh, writing with two T's, like writing, then I wouldn't take their comments very seriously. Which is, I think, totally fair. But one of the things that I kind of touched on was like, okay, let's talk about the things that I'm in control of and the things that I'm not. So they're like, I said, if you say there's too much writing in this class, I'm like, (laughs) A, it's a writing class, don't care. But B, that's not going to change, so don't waste your time. And they're like, well, I don't like the attendance policy. That's a department policy. We've agreed upon that. Complaining to me about that policy is not going to elicit change. And so I'm like, Here what I, here's what I am in control of. The book. I chose the book. The level of snark. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the sass. Um, you know, the assignments in terms of, like, the way they were sequenced and how I went about teaching them. And I was like, so talk about things that I can actually do stuff about. Here are the things that aren't going to get anywhere. Mm-hmm. So I think kind of letting them know what I was in control of and what I wasn't, I hoped will help them, like, have a better evaluation or response. Yes, I hope so. And I don't think I was ever told that when I was an undergraduate. I I never knew what a professor had control over or not. And while normally academic freedom kind of ideally means that I can do whatever the hell I want, in reality I work within a department, within a division, within a college, and I have to sort of do things that are going to keep all of those sort of floating and moving forward. I think I got tired of the same old stuff, you know, like, mm. can we just write less? Can we just, you know, you know, just the same stuff. I didn't like know I, you taught surfers. I do. Totally. <laughs> or whatever. Like, they just don't want to do things that I'm, or the things that I can't change, I commented on mm-hmm. the most. And I was like, well, I would rather them spend their energy yes. coming on, commenting on something that I actually do have power over. Yeah, and I think that's much more, well, A, important, but also gives them a lot more control in knowing that these are things, here are things that you can't change and here are things that you can change. For my students, I, basically I can change whatever, whatever I want since mm-hmm. I, my courses are not in parts of sequences or I'm the one who's in the sequence. So, so right. if I change the first semester, I know that coming into the second semester. Are you grading? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am. <laughs> nice. So you weren't listening to anything I just said? I heard all of that. I agree 100%. Okay, that's right. Okay. <laughs> that is the correct answer. <laughs> well, we're going to, uh, the podcast is going to take a break after this episode uh, because it is Christmas winter break. break. Winter break, yes. It is winter break. So we will be on hiatus for a little while with the podcast. Three weeks, four three, weeks. Three, four weeks. So we'll be back. Uh, Except for that guy. He'll be working. Yeah. He, yeah. Well, Drew's <laughs> still got a job to do. <laughs> I'll be back after. Solstice. After the solstice, yes, yes. After a little Saturnalia party, you know, we'll uh, then. Uh, so in January, we'll be back and we'll pick up sort of where we left off. But I wanted to let our listeners know that your feed will be empty for a little bit while we recuperate. <laughs> I need a nap really bad. <laughs> like my students as well. Yeah. Well, if your students are tired, they have to know that we're also exhausted. Yes, yes. I, a nap would be bad. fantastic for me as well. So uh, we will be napping. I hope you are napping plenty as well, eating lots of food, and you get all the kinds of 
weird, crazy gizmos that the kids want these days, whatever those are. All I know is what five-year-olds want, which I'm pretty sure our listeners are not so interested in. And I don't believe in giving gifts, so... Well, that that's you. <laughs> I hate Christmas. Okay. So Melody has been replaced by an alien. <laughs> what? I used, to, I used to say communist, but now winter. I have students and colleagues who come from communist countries, and I feel really bad <laughs> saying communist. So anyway, we'll take a break. We will see you in the new year. So happy holidays. Right. Happy New Year. Uh, happy winter. <laughs>